It's the tip of the spear in the epic battle to defend the United States of America. The National Security Hour exposes the wolves in sheep's clothing and their nefarious plots to undermine and destroy U.S. national security. Welcome, everyone. This is Colonel Rhett John on the National Security Hour for America Out Loud News Network. And today, I would say this has to be the most special guest I've had on so far, because I would not be here right now if it wasn't for this man, Frank Gaffney. So, Frank, thank you so much for everything. Uh, could you please just give everybody a little bit about yourself, your journey uh, to where you, uh, where you came from, to where you uh, are today? Well, I'll be delighted to, John. I, I do have to say at the outset, I'm not quite sure how it could possibly be on that journey that I'm responsible for you because you've done so much and so importantly for so long, uh, long before I met you for sure. But uh, I, I'm thrilled at the partnership that we've had, John, particularly with the Committee on the Present Danger China, which you've been such a, a stalwart and, and leading force, as well as, of course, on our television program, Securing America. And I can't thank you enough for all those contributions. Um, my uh, career, such as been uh, peaked early, and it's been all downhill ever since. I, I had the privilege <laughs> of working for two remarkable United States senators, uh, Scoop Jackson, a Democrat, and John Tower, uh, a Republican, then the chairman of the Senate Armed Services Committee. Um, I wound up going to work after that for a guy that I worked with in Scoop Jackson's office by the name of Richard Pearl, who was an assistant secretary in the Reagan Defense Department. Um, I came aboard in uh, 1983, uh, just as the whole effort to get the Pershing and ground launch cruise missiles inserted into Europe uh, was reaching its denouement uh, in the role of Deputy Assistant Secretary of Defense for Nuclear Forces and Arms Control Policy. I served in that role for about four years. Uh, the last seven months, uh, Richard Pearl had uh, bailed out and I was nominated by President Reagan to replace him. I served in an acting capacity in that uh, in that role um, for those seven months. And then Casper uh, uh, Weinberger uh, left the Pentagon and I went with him. And um, shortly thereafter started the organization I've been with pretty much ever since, the uh, Center for Security Policy, uh, which you have been a distinguished senior fellow now for a number of years. We're grateful for that as well. Uh, and in that capacity, I've, among other things, been privileged to be the vice chairman of the Committee on the Present Danger China, again, of which uh, you are a member. So lots of interconnecting inter spaces, and it's been uh, great to know you, John, and good to work with you, and congratulations on this new gig. Oh, thank you. Uh, thank you, Frank. And and I'm I'm very serious about that. You 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 gave me a chance at the microphone to really help out. And uh, I appreciate that, Frank. I'm eternally grateful. Uh, thank Good. you so much. Thank uh, you, my friend. Thank you. Um you, you mentioned Scoop Jackson and 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 I always it just stunning. I grew up in Washington State. I remember as a younger kid, Scoop Jackson was a hawk, a hawk. And we wouldn't have sure the, tr was. the Trident missile system and the Trident, the Banger nuclear submarine base if it wasn't for Scoop Jackson. Mm -hmm. And I just, 
I, I just, I don't even know. It seems like a, a, a long time ago in a galaxy far away because Washington state is just not Scoop Jackson's Washington state. Well, the Democratic Party isn't his either. In fact, I often think about the high RPM he must be spinning at in his grave as he looks at uh, uh, institutions that he worked hard on and and beloved. Um, uh, it, interesting that you say that about Bangor, John. I was there when uh, the Bangor base was being built, uh, working for him on his personal staff. And, um, you know, I'm not sure there would have been a nuclear navy if there hadn't been for Scoop Jackson. He was uh, Hyman Rickover's, uh, I think, most uh, devoted champion. And uh, back when, you know, the rest of the Navy wasn't so sure they needed a nuclear power uh, or certainly didn't need Hyman Rickover, uh, <laughs> Scoop, Scoop was one of those defenders who uh, assured that his Hyman Rickover's extraordinary vision of uh, nuclear-powered um, aircraft carriers, nuclear-powered submarines, ballistic missile submarines, other ships of the line um, came to fruition. And uh, the value of them has been incalculable, I think. Uh, that vision has been borne out and a credit to Scoop, but uh, of course also to Admiral Rickover. And wow, what a legend. And for those of you who don't know, Admiral Rickover, uh, a, a, a legendary, not just Navy, but American, as Frank said, a visionary who the Navy didn't, the Navy hated Hyman Rickover and tried to get rid of him so often. Yeah. It, it was a <laughs> for decades, in fact. You know, John, I, uh, just a funny story on that. Uh, when I was very young, I mean, I was uh, uh, in my mid 20s, I guess, and uh, had just begun working with Scoop. And um, somehow it came to pass that uh, Admiral Rickover invited me over for lunch in his uh, in his office. And, um, I, you know, I, I was in awe of the man, of course, um, and I felt he was obviously doing, you know, a shrewd political move, making sure that he knew who was working with Scoop and had a relationship and so on. But um, I felt as though I was uh, like a mouse <laughs> that a cat was playing with. It wasn't going to kill it. It was just going <laughs> to play with a little and you know the stories of are legendary you talk about legends uh legendary of of how he treated candidates for the nuclear navy program the propulsion program and um it, it, generally speaking they weren't just played with they were mauled uh by the uh by the admiral so yeah no he he uh he had an extraordinary determination to transform the Navy, and he did, and uh, he made a lot of enemies along the trail, that's for sure. Yeah, yeah, legendary. I mean, he had, uh, the Navy would try and put him in a converted broom closet. They wouldn't promote him. Um, and, you know, general flag officers, they can let you go if you they don't have a position for you. You just call It's called the conversation. They just call you in and just let you know it's time to move on. But uh, but I mean, it was like like you, Scoop Jackson, uh, uh, prevented him from being done away with. So he stayed. Oh, well, I, I was uh, I was just a tad uh, higher than, you know, Scoop Jackson's knee. It was all about him. But, you know, again, it, it speaks to the quality of that 
man as well. Um, Scoop was, you were right, a hawk for sure on national security. He was um, he was Reagan before there was Reagan in Washington. Uh, he believed in peace through strength. He promoted it through his role on the Armed Services Committee. And I had the privilege of serving with him for a time on that uh, committee and then went to work for John Tower when the Senate changed hands in 1980. But the, the striking thing about it, John, is he combined all of that with a very liberal, I guess today it would be, you know, probably a mainstream Republican view. But at the time, it was a very liberal Democrat uh, social policy uh, position. And uh, and you just don't see that Scoop Jackson Democrat in the world today, alas. I think we're the worst for it. I believe there are a lot of Democrat voters who probably align that way. They love this history. Um, they support our military. Uh, they want social programs and all the rest, but uh, uh, they're not represented in uh, the democratic party of today sadly wow 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 this, this is so important this is so important now um a key document and it and it traces and, it, and it's important for understanding the committee on present danger china um i think it was presidential directive 75 uh i think that's the number from the reagan years and it essentially was the we're going to put the Soviets out of business, and you were one of the critical figures in shaping and forming uh, of that document. And I mean, I would talk about n another historical document. What, what are your memories about that and, and thoughts uh, on that seminal document? Well, I wish I could take credit for it, John. I, honestly, I was <clears throat> I was on the executing side of the house uh, in the Pentagon. Um, I, I don't remember the exact date of that, but I think it was before I came into uh, the administration. I was still working on the Hill, but uh, the idea and and you've mentioned the Committee on the Present Danger. I want to just put that in a little historical uh, context, if I may. Ronald Reagan was a member of the original Committee on the Present Danger, as you may remember, John, uh, back in the mid-1970s. He basically went to this sort of pickup team of national security practitioners, retired military leaders, um, business executives, subject matter experts on the, the whole Soviet Union, and other patriots. And uh, he went and asked them for essentially a plan for how to not just, you know, sort of manage the U.S.-Soviet relationship, not even just contain the Soviet Union, but to take down the Soviet Communist Party and, and end the evil empire. And you know what's extraordinary is that uh, that strategy uh, was actually integrated into his campaign platform. It was a centerpiece of his policy of peace through strength. And uh, it was very much something he sought a mandate to execute. He got that mandate in the 1980 election, and he pulled, it's my recollection, 33 or so members of the Committee on the Present Danger into the administration in a variety of capacities to help execute the strategy. I was a little too young to uh, be active in that, but I certainly was one of those who uh, worked with people who were part of it and admired it greatly. And when I did join the team in the Pentagon, I think one of the, the early tests, really, of that 
strategy was, uh, as I mentioned, the deployment of intermediate range missiles. Mm. And the Soviets, as you remember, John, I'm sure, went all out to try to prevent that deployment. They they really thought by mobilizing the anti-nuclear left and the, the Marxists and you know, others in Europe, they could bring it to a screeching halt because we had to get it into five different basing countries. Mm-hmm. And there were immense you know, countervailing pressures uh, against that program. And by God, uh, and thanks, no small measure to Ronald Reagan, but also to Casper Weinberger, for whom I had the privilege of working when he was Secretary of Defense, we got the job done. And I think that was the breaking point for the Soviet Union. It was kind of the high water mark of uh, their efforts to dominate us, uh, to intimidate us, and to and to prevail over us. Um, there was a lot that played out afterwards. And again, thanks to Reagan and uh, his strategic defense initiative, his buildup, and, and, and most especially going back to uh, national uh, the the presidential directive seventy five to cutting off the cash flow mm-hmm. that was enabling the uh, Soviets to keep going and our friend and colleague Roger Robinson was uh, was one of the guys who really does deserve the lion's share of the credit for helping Reagan um, you know articulate that sort of tactical execution plan for the strategy that the Committee on the Present Danger developed. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Well, I, what baffles me, and we'll we'll talk about this some more in in uh, the next two segments, is uh, like you said, PD seventy five, which was top secret. You can look at it in the Reagan Library. It's a top. It's and run. By the way, most presidents do leave office with top secret documents. It just they sure do. Uh, uh, the archives fa- uh, failed President Trump on that intentionally, I think. Mm-hmm. But uh, it's it's the primary instrument of national power is the economy, and yet the blue side, the Democrats, they always think in the instruments of national power. They they, they don't know anything other than the M or military instrument of national power, and 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 you and Roger and Reagan right away. It's not. The M is a is a deterrence part, but the real action is economics, yeah. and uh, uh, just the blue. Well, it can be. That. That's that's for sure. And, and, you know what's most frustrating to me as a former Scoop Jackson Democrat is that um, the use of the military by the Democrats uh, is generally a hash up, not not because of shortcomings in the military as a general rule, but because of uh, oftentimes, John, as you know better than most with your background, both in the military and as a civilian executive, the micromanagement of the military. Uh, it's just a formula. If you're, if you're using it inappropriately and then you're trying to make sure that uh, it's all managed to your specifications or your idea of a of a plan uh, i mean look no further than afghanistan mm. for an example or or john i would argue afghanistan 2.0 <laughs> which is what's happening as we speak with respect oh. to israel oh absolutely it's it's shameful it's shameful well they took a, took them a week to figure out what they were going to bomb after tower 22 was hit and three americans died well why was it is this like 
President Johnson reviewing the bombing list in 66, 67, um, target by target? I mean, I think so. Uh, not not necessarily the president in this case. I think it was, you know, the people who actually run the government, not President Biden. But John, you know, it was worse than that in a way was that it took whatever it was, days of pre-announcing we were going to be bombing in a certain area, certain targets, to make sure that nobody on the other side was anywhere near the targets uh and therefore you know there was uh, essentially no uh no loss of life on the part of the enemy which i think spoke volumes to them about our lack of seriousness under this president yeah oh, this is just shameful shameful yeah i i uh i think that was uh intentional and gave them uh, some debate kirby says oh we warned them then the iraqi government says no we didn't warn them state department then says kirby we didn't warn them i mean come on <laughs> They, they knew they gave them a week to run and hide. And so we punched a bunch of, we told them when the planes were coming. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, what do you mean? You didn't warn them. Of course yeah. they did. Yeah. Yeah. That's shameful. That's shameful. Okay. Well, well, Frank, we're going to come back in a couple of follow on segments. So, uh, thank you so much. Uh, again, everybody, this is a uh, Colonel Rhett, John, Colonel Rhett, John, on the National Security Hour uh, for America Out Loud News Network with my special, special guest, friend and colleague, Frank Gaffney. And we'll be right back. The pandemic may be over for some, but millions of Americans are needlessly suffering from the long-term effects of toxic spike protein from COVID-19 and the vaccines. Fortunately, Dr. Peter McCullough and his team at the wellness company designed their spike support formula with the miracle enzyme natokinase, scientifically studied to dissolve spike protein so you can feel your very best. Go to OutLoudCare.com today and use code OUTLOUD for 25% off your first order. Cardiovascular disease is the leading cause of death and disability. Lifestyle changes are critical, but you can also support your heart with concentrated nutrients. Healthy Cell created heart and vascular health to support cholesterol and blood pressure with CoQ10, vitamin K2, resveratrol, and soluble fiber. And Healthy Cell's not a pill. It's a patent-pending gel you swallow. Get heart healthy. Go to HealthyCell.com and use code OUTLOUD for 25% off your first order. HealthyCell.com. Code OUTLOUD for 25% off. ASEA believes that inside each of us is the potential to feel our very best. Our redox-based products tap into reserves within you to power your personal well-being. Make our breakthrough products an essential step in fulfilling your greatest potential. ASEA. We power potential. For exclusive savings, Use code OUTLOUD to save 15% off your first order today. We're back. This is Colonel Rhett John on the National Security Hour for America Out Loud News Network. And again, my special, special, special guest, Frank Gaffney. And uh, so uh, well, the... Uh, the uh, Frank, what is your position on the committee? So Brian, Brian, maybe is the lead. Do you consider yourself the deputy lead of the I committee? I do. I'm, I'm kind of his wingman. Uh, Brian Kennedy is our chairman, and I am the vice chairman of the committee on the present danger of China. All right. Yeah. Yeah. Great. Great. And uh, that was uh, that first event with the committee on present danger was just so wonderful. We did it in the 
ROA, Reserve Officers Association building, right, right. Be behind Capitol Hill. It was a rousing first event. It was just really packed, well attended. And well, and you know what was so fun about it, John, was if, as you remember, um, we wanted the members of the committee to each have an opportunity to talk about their particular insight into the problem. And, and as with that original committee on the present danger, you know, we had experienced national security practitioners. We had people like yourself who had served with great distinction, both in uniform and in uh, civilian mode. Um, we had some business leaders. We had some subject matter experts, particularly in this case about China, of course. Um, and and just assorted other patriots, and each of them got, I think, two minutes, and it was just a gangbusters event, and uh, got us off onto a very strong start, I think. Yeah, 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 it, it really was. It is, by the way, if I may, John, also yeah. say, like all of the work that we do uh, on video in the uh, committee's uh, webpage, presentdangerchina.org, I commend it, uh, and all of the webinars and the rest to your audience as well yeah that is a that is a an incredible treasure trove of of archives uh on uh, the work of the committee since uh uh wow when did we begin 20, 2019 2019 five years ago yeah yeah 2019 and um i think the metric of effectiveness and we've done some polling and studied polling on this is uh, and from the beginning, we felt like we maybe at the beginning were talking to ourselves or maybe not being heard. But over time, the general attitude of the American people toward the Chinese Communist Party at the time, you know, people are going, what's the big deal? Who cares? You know, what's what's going on? You know, China's the future. Hooray, China. That's not the that's not e even the most hardened deep staters realize they have a fire in the main engine room with their buddies mm -hmm. in China. But, uh, but yeah, I mean, the population, you know, polling the American people, predominantly a negative view of the Chinese Communist Party when, you know, not, not saying that we're going to wear ourselves out patting ourselves on the back. But I think a lot of it was because of, of you and Brian's uh, leadership and uh, this consistent messaging from, uh, from the committee. Well, I thank you. Back at you, John. You've been as consistent in the messaging as anybody, and uh, I, I think you're right. We we do deserve some measure of having helped synthesize a lot of information and and make it available in a way that I think has been impactful. But uh, let's be honest, John. I think it was COVID mm. that changed public opinion dramatically because as people got the truth, and they didn't initially as you know, as they got the truth that this was not only a virus that emanated from Wuhan, China, that the Chinese, you know, dissembled about and concealed how best to contend with it, um, with help, by the way, from the World Health Organization. And I hope we'll have a chance to talk a little bit about mm -hmm. that outfit. But, mm -hmm. you know, when they learned that not only did it come from Wuhan, but it came from a biological warfare laboratory in Wuhan, and that, amazingly, our own government had been putting funding and technology and know-how into that laboratory 
to help make this disease. And then the people who were involved in that, like Tony Fauci, lied about their involvement and again, compounded the problem that the Chinese weren't telling us the truth. Well, I think this whole thing, um, you know, there's a line and, and it harkens back to our commentary about uh, Scoop and and conservatives. There's a line about conservatives being liberals who've been mugged by reality. <laughs> and I think the American people have been mugged by the reality of what the Chinese Communist Party really is by this experience with COVID and a lot of other things too, I think you could point to, but, uh, but that I think was the game changer. And um, I hope it's in time, my friend, you know, the hour is very late and I know you wanted to talk about some of the threats that we're currently facing, but uh, uh, we need the American people to be alive to this danger and really engaged in trying to help us defeat it. Yeah, yeah, right on. Um, yeah, we're, we're, I just wanted to bring up one more. I'll never forget the time, and just coincidentally, it, and it worked out perfect. I was on a uh, on a business trip to Los Angeles, and we had a uh, kind of one of our first remote public presentations on the committee with you and Brian, and that was essentially just days before everything the world changed mm -hmm. and the, the nation was shut down and the pathway to a to a uh, uh stealing of elections and mm -hmm. uh, everything else just absolute chaos and all the tentacles lead back to china the china model is what they called it john the china mm -hmm. model was the lockdowns it was the mask mandates it was the um social distancing it was the use of inadequately tested so-called vaccines. It was, you know, the idea that um, what, what we need to do is abandon the practice that was basically the American model to that point, which was early treatment with as widely available, as inexpensive, and as safe therapies as we could and that was all set aside the hydroxychloroquine the ivermectin was uh, not only uh, impermissible it it was made a punishable offense for any medical doctor or any pharmacist who was willing to allow it to be provided to people and i don't know how many of the what is it now, 1.1 million Americans and countless others around the world, John, who died needlessly. But whatever that number was, it, it's, you know, it is an indictment of the people who helped perpetrate it. And yes, that was largely the Chinese, but it was also our own Tony Fauci and FDA and CDC. And of course, uh, lots of folks overseas who were implicated as well. The World Economic Forum. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, so China's behind this. You, you, you really led the spearheaded two. I mean, the committee did many things, but two critical things is uh, one was the Team B report on Wuhan, and then also. Uh, your 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 book, the indictment, where you really artfully brought everything together. But uh, just for everybody, what the, the Team B report first of all? What, it, what uh, you know, the impact of that? If you share it with everybody, yeah, you know, Team B was another 
um, homage, if you will, to um, a famous effort back in the Cold War. Uh, and in fact, I think it helped give rise to the Committee on the Present Danger 1.0. It was a group of people, John, I think you may have known some of them, um, that were pulled together. It's a, it's a, actually an interesting story. Could I take just a minute to tell oh, it? Please, please. Um, I, I couldn't quite figure out how it came about, John, but there was a, a brilliant guy by the name of Johnny Foster, Oh, yes, Johnny Foster. I mean, yes. I, I think he's still alive. I yeah, hope he's, he's, yes. he's an amazing human being. But he was he was one of the most um, competent, capable, formidable nuclear scientists in America for decades. And uh, in the Ford administration, he was the director of research and engineering, which was, I think, the number three position in the Pentagon. And he was watching with horror, John, what was going on under the rubric of detente. Mm -hmm. It had started really with Johnson. It had been boosted by Nixon and especially Kissinger. And then, you know, Ford carried it on. And he left the Pentagon. And Johnny Foster, it turns out, he told me this, it went to see a guy who had just been appointed the director of the Central Intelligence Agency. He just come back from his previous post, which was as ambassador to China. His name was George Herbert Walker Bush. Mm. And he said to George Bush, before, you know, the deep state that you've written about so powerfully got a hold of him, you know, George, don't you think it might be a good idea to get kind of a second opinion on this whole detente thing? And Bush, I think, innocently said, uh, well, sure, that sounds like a good idea, Johnny. Why don't you... You know, help put it together. So they they got some of the hardest line guys in America together, and George H.W. Bush gave them basically carte blanche access to the files of the Central Intelligence Agency and the briefings and the secret analyses and so on of what the Soviet order of battle was, what it was doing, you know, what was coming next, and so on. And lo and behold, this Team B, as it was called, because Team A was the official, you know, sense of all this. Team B came out and said, this is suicidal. We have to divert from this course of, you know, essentially doing nothing as the Soviet Union keeps building and building and building its nuclear forces and other capabilities. And that became, I believe, the, a lot of the same people became the wellspring for the Committee on the Present Danger and then for the Reagan strategy for taking it down. So our homage to Team B was what's actually the third version of Team B, Team B3. Team B2 was a fabulous study that we did, John, at the Committee on the Present Danger, excuse me, on the my other gig, the Center for Security Policy. I'm the executive chairman now of this, but founded it initially back in 1988. This book, Sharia, the Threat to America, mm -hmm. is required mm -hmm. reading if you're interested in what is the other scourge of our time, in addition to Chinese communism and, of course, uh, the World Economic Forum, the globalist, international, godless types. Sharia supremacism. Mm -hmm. is a, mm -hmm. another totalitarian force we have to deal with. But this book, entitled The CCP is at war with America, was a Team B, a second opinion, a competitive analysis, if you will, on this issue. We were told by the Central Intelligence Agency, Team A, if you will, that we just can't figure out 
where this virus came from. Maybe it was from nature. Maybe it was from a laboratory. We just can't tell. Well, we took a hard look at it. I think you were involved with it, John, if I'm mm-hmm. not mistaken. But uh, yes. this this program, uh, our our analysis of it came up with one, I think, clear and absolutely indisputable finding. And that is this thing sprung from a laboratory. However it got out, we can't quite say. But what we do know is that the Chinese communists sent it here. And mm-hmm. elsewhere around the world when they weren't letting people out of Wuhan internally. And what that can, can well, constitutes in our estimation is a deliberate biological weapons attack on the United States. And I fear, to go to the point of what else might be coming, there will be more of that in the future. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. It was it was a great experience doing that team B with report with you, Frank and everybody else. Um, we appreciate your help, my friend. Oh, thank you. Yeah, yeah. Johnny Foster, uh, I had the honor of being the executive uh, uh, assistant to what's called a Defense Science Board summer study. And this is back before the cancer of wokeism just destroyed the strategic thought in the uh, in the Department of Defense. Yes. And we're going to put that date as approximately, let's say, oh, I don't know, maybe 20, uh, maybe, you know, by the end of the Obama administration, it was, yeah, that's one of the cancer oh, really. It was started. running amok in the, that administration, as you know. Yeah. Oh, oh, but I, I was there. We were at the, at this, at the, in, in a summer study, you, 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 you assemble these incredible minds and it's both sides of the aisle. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, Vince Vito uh, of uh, Draper Labs, you know, he definitely was on, on on the other side of the aisle but the guy was brilliant and just he was concerned about defending america i mean he was a scoop jackson uh, democrat if you mm-hmm. if use that term but it was great great but i'll never forget one morning uh we were at the beckman center at uc irvine this this grand gathering having breakfast together for like three weeks you, you just every day you you, you have this you, you come together to produce this magnificent report with the greatest minds and everybody Everybody starts going, that's Johnny Foster, Johnny Foster, that's Johnny Foster, Johnny Foster, Johnny Foster. I'm going, okay, I give up. Who is Johnny Foster? Well, I now I know, you know, mm-hmm. you, he is one of the, probably the top three re- reasons we won the Cold War. He made nuclear okay. warheads miniature and he made them safe and he made them reliable. His his team at Sandia and, and uh, um, um, yeah. um yeah, just he was just incredible. But uh, yeah, wow. Well, and and you know he's one of the few scientists I think uh, still with us who have those kinds of experiences. Uh, there's I, I'm not sure there's anybody in the nuclear establishment today who's ever tested a nuclear weapon, let alone designed one. Yeah, Johnny yeah. Foster did. He knew wherever he spoke, and he was very concerned. I've talked with him many times about it over the years. He was very concerned about the decision to stop doing realistic underground nuclear tests because he understood a a little known secret, John. Every time they tested a nuclear weapon, a mutual friend of mine and and his by the name of Robert Bailey, um, with whom I worked in the Pentagon, said every time we had one of these tests, we learned something. Sometimes we learned that we had made a terrific mistake. Sometimes mm-hmm. it was just that it didn't quite go the way it was supposed to. But we stopped doing that. And I had I had a friend by the name of um, 
uh, Steve Young, uh, Steve, Steve Younger, excuse me, who was uh, at the time the guy who ran the nuclear test site where we used to do mm-hmm. that kind of mm-hmm. testing. Mm-hmm. And he told me years after we stopped, he said uh, one of his brightest young guys came to him one point and he said, you know, Dr. Younger, I hate experimentation because it interferes with my calculations. <laughs> And that tells you all you need to know about the danger that you run when you don't do experimentation, because those calculations can be wrong and sometimes fatally wrong. Yeah, that that was a very, very deep and wise pun, and uh, mm-hmm. but it was very, very real. Well, I think he meant it. Uh, yeah, yeah, no yeah, pun well, intended. It it, it is. Um, and, you know, it was the, I hate to use that harsh term, but it was the lie of, we don't need that because we have, we'll use supercomputers to model the explosion. Ladies and gentlemen, I know a bit about this. That never happened. That never occurred. And, and, and like Frank was saying, there, there's, no, there's no substitute for, for doing the real thing. Yeah. Um, so, uh, so I know Frank, we got to take a break, but you know, the old garbage in, garbage out uh, line applies to this. We can talk about that if you'd like. Further. Yeah, 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 absolutely. Th- thank you, Frank. And and everybody, this is Colonel Rhett John, uh, my special, special guest, Frank Gaffney. And we'll be back for our final segment in just a moment. When God, through his grace and mercy, gave us free will, the will of the people was to live freely. To that end, we fight for the liberty of all. At a time when global tyranny threatens us as never before in mankind's history. This vision is manifest at AmericaOutloud.news, a site for all who cherish free will and freedom. Now is our time, my fellow Americans. America Out Loud Talk Radio. Liberty and justice for all. Millions of Americans are needlessly suffering from the long-haul effects of the toxic spike protein. Dr. Peter McCullough and his team at The Wellness Company designed their spike support formula to counteract harmful spike protein from COVID-19 and vaccines so you can feel your best. Go to OutLoudCare.com today and use code OUTLOUD for 25% off your first order. You've all heard Dr. McCullough and others share over and over the value of keeping your sinuses cleansed. It's a smart move all year, but even more so when we're cooped up inside. It's not really open for debate any longer. Those that live smart and live well pay attention to nasal and oral hygiene. Cofix RX has just the tools for the job with our nasal and throat cleanse. Click the Cofix RX banner on AmericaOutloud.shop to get 20% off your entire order. That's right, AmericaOutloud.shop. Use coupon code OUTLOUD. That's coupon code OUTLOUD for 20% off your entire order. Use CofixRx because it works. All right, we'll back, we're back for our final segment uh, with Frank Gaffney, uh, my special, special guest. And uh, this has just been wonderful talking to Frank about so many important 
events that have shaped where we're at today, our showdown with the Chinese Communist Party. But one, um, we were talking about a giant of American national security, a giant that many have never heard of. And that's Johnny Foster. And I, and I was just, we, we were having one of our committee meetings not too long ago, just like in last month or two. And, and, and Johnny Foster's name came up and I checked. He was still, he was still alive. Good. Uh, beautiful house, nice house in Pacific Palisades overlooking what used to be uh, a beautiful uh, Los Angeles basin, El Segundo, all those places. Um, so, um, yeah, one time I went to Lawrence Livermore. It was back in, let's say, I think it was a trip about 2014 and 12 to 14. And I'll never forget, this says everything. I think it's Michael Yan who also, you kind of use the term museum warfare, and this is a variation of it. It's, uh, you walk down the halls of Lawrence Livermore. I'm not, I'm not releasing any classified information except for the wall art. And the wall art was these incredible, historic, black and white, huge photos of, you know, from the 50s to the late 50s to the 60s and really about, you know, 1960 when Johnny Foster and team came in and uh, at Lawrence Livermore, South Bay region and started uh, working on, on things. And then just all these incredible, and I did say incredible nuclear warheads. You know, we had a, our max capacity was like 36,000 of all these different variations, but they never, they were safe. They were miniaturized, they worked, and they didn't go off when you didn't want them to go off, and they went off when you wanted them to go off, unlike the Soviets. And that was great, and it was brilliant. So this wall art is just, you're going, this is history. And then you're going through the years. It's 1980, it's 1985, 1990, 1992. And then from that point on, these giant black and whites of working on this incredible technology transition to Lawrence Livermore's new focus is recycling. I'm not kidding. I'm not yeah. kidding. This is well, that was before climate change. Yeah, yeah, yeah. This is, you know, nuclear warheads, sorting glass and sorting plastic, nuclear warheads, sorting glass and sorting plastic. I'm sorry, in science and technology, no comparison. <laughs> it yeah. just, it but you know, that, what that coincided with, John, of course, as you know, was the decision by uh, the Bush administration, George H.W. Bush, that very same guy who commissioned Team B, um, to put in place a moratorium on nuclear testing. And the missions of the labs, I mean, they continued in a kind of vestigial way, um, fair amount of effort but basically it was a you know a sh shadow a pale comparison to what it previously had been and and even today john i mean you 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 know sort of derided the soviets but the russians have in the space of the past few years completely modernized mm -hmm. their nuclear arsenal um one of our colleagues uh you probably remember uh, Dr. Mark Schneider estimates that I think there are 25 different new nuclear systems in the Soviet, now Russian mm -hmm. arsenal. The Chinese, probably roughly the same. They have hot production lines. They have active testing programs, albeit that they do it covertly and in violation of the Comprehensive Test Ban Treaty uh, we observe unilaterally. But, John, the point is, you know, if we need to build a nuclear weapon today, 
it basically has to be hand built mm -hmm. in one of those laboratories that you've mentioned. And even then, uh, it's being built by people who haven't ever actually tested one of these things and who will be very uncomfortable if their calculations are challenged, to say the least. Yeah, well, I uh, um, I know NNSA a bit. They are literally scraping together and looking for the paper blueprints for these things mm -hmm. as we attempt to recapitalize and modernize. And now that Biden has been overruled in the National Defense Authorization Act and the W-80 warheads are going to be refit onto the tomahawks, um, like you said, I mean, we've just been maintaining an elderly uh, a pile, but, you know, they're trying to do the pits to create new, the core of a nuclear weapon. It's pretty bad. But not a new design, I don't believe. I think just a new, you know, nuclear weapon. And here, John, is one of the things. And I, I if Johnny were here, I, I'm sure he would be very much with us on this observation. The idea that you can just take a design that he may have had a hand in going back to, oh, let's be conservative. Maybe it's just the 70s, not the 60s or 50s, the 1970s, well, maybe the 1980s. And you can just take out vacuum tubes or or other, you know, antique pieces of equipment, some of which are carcinogenic, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. has to be removed now for that reason. And you can plug something else back in and, and you can put it all back together again and you can put it onto a weapon and hope it works without doing a real test of it. I mean, yes, calculations and simulations and supercomputers and all the rest, but not, not a real test. It's not a sure thing. I'm sorry to say that it will perform as it is supposed to. And that means our deterrent is not credible. And when it goes up against people who've been deadly serious about, as I say, building out all kinds of weapons, some of which we don't even really understand. We've got a problem in terms of assuring that our enemies are deterred. And that makes me very, very anxious indeed. Yeah, yeah. No, I, I, I totally agree with you. Um, we're, we're at a workforce that at best has been kind of maintaining that this pile um, but as far as expanding it, uh, re reattaching it. So, I mean, you just, you're gonna have to re-engineer it. A lot of mm -hmm. things have changed. You don't have a bunch of W-80s just sitting on the shelf at uh, the different sites and say, okay, you're just gonna screw this onto the top of, uh, uh, I mean, things have changed. So uh, this is a Well, especially that, John, as you know, what's especially changed is the nature of deterrence. I mean, mm -hmm. we built that arsenal, Johnny Foster and his colleagues built that arsenal to attack deeply buried or otherwise hardened targets like silos. Mm -hmm. And that, you know, we wanted to destroy them with confidence. So we built these immense nuclear weapons, immensely powerful nuclear weapons, and we put them on various delivery systems. But the nature of what you are going to attack now is different, and the desire to do it more discriminatingly is different if you want to be credible about your deterrent. And that's what, again, worries me so much about this Pentagon. I, I think we are more worried about climate change by far than we are about uh, really preventing a nuclear war in the one way that we've known to have worked, and that is to deter 
and be able to defeat it if deterrence fails. Yeah, yeah, ab- absolutely. Um, well, Frank, in the, in, so we, in the time remaining here, what do you think? Now, all of this really, there is a nuclear threat, and it's worse than ever before because it's not we, – we talked a lot. A lot of it was about the Soviets, okay? Now we have – a rising power that very we what concerns me is i don't i have never gotten the impression that the intelligence community and i worked very closely in that environment uh, that they took the chinese until until the last really year or two the chinese nuclear threat was just dismissed i mean it was like it wasn't even dismissed it wasn't even acknowledged to exist and now talk about concern i'm concerned i've been watching the numbers and I, i'm concerned the, the chinese have a far bigger nuclear force than the russians mm. and we were slightly smaller than what the russians had so so what do you in the in in the in the next year what do you what do you think china's moves are going to be what do you what do you think they're going to do in the next before because they don't they, they they don't want hurricane trump back in office so what That's do you think well, let, let me come to that second, but just a quick word on the Chinese nuclear buildup. Uh, John, you're absolutely right. I mean, I th- we have had as a mantra for decades the idea that the Chinese only wanted a minimal deterrence. Uh, some said it was going to be 100 warheads, which is about what Pakistan is credited with having, uh, maybe 400. Um, but basically, they were just you know having what they thought was the bare minimum needed to deter us. Uh, and let's face it, you know, uh, the possibility that a single nuclear weapon on an American city is likely to deter us if we had any interest in actually waging nuclear war. And I don't think we do. But John, what the Chinese have done of late, and I think this has been part of their plan all along, I have the feeling that they've done a lot more than we've credited them for even before they started building something like 320 or maybe 350 of these hardened silos out in the desert. And one of the tells is this, John, as I'm sure you know, but it wasn't something our intelligence services figured out. One of our Committee on the Present Danger China members, Phil Carber, Dr. Phil Carber at Georgetown University, put together a study with some graduate students and I think some undergrads as well. And they figured out that the Chinese had, over the past, whatever it's been, 15, 20 years now, built 3,000 miles of hardened underground tunnels in which they were able to hide whatever they wanted. And I'm sure that it involved, among other things, running around in those tunnels on trucks, maybe on trains, nuclear missiles that we haven't ever counted with untold numbers of warheads on them. They probably have nuclear you know, facilities, uh, building those weapons and mating them up and all the rest of it underground as well. And who knows what in the way of command and control. So John, the point is, I think we have underestimated for years the nature of the chinese nuclear threat but it honestly pales by comparison with the underestimating we've done on the rest of their warfare that they've been waging against us and you've contributed enormously to our understanding of all this with our various webinars that we've done under the banner of the committee on the present danger china let me just say i hope that you're 
audience is already aware of this uh, opportunity, but we've done in the past two years or so, 120 of these webinars. And they can all be found at presentdangerchina.org. Uh, you can subscribe to them so you don't miss any of them. But they're really a graduate-level course on what the Chinese have been doing in two principal respects. One is this so-called pre-kinetic unrestricted warfare, whereby they've been using everything short of actual physical hostilities against us, uh, with the possible exception of biological weapons. Um in favor of everything else. And you mentioned very importantly a short while ago the use of economic and financial techniques, but there's also political warfare. There's also, you know, subversion of various kinds, influence operations, uh, you know, taking down our military through the help they've been able to get. And this is the other principal focus of these committee webinars is their friends. In fact, John, as you know, we've done with, again, your contributions included, a book on the subject called The Indictment, prosecuting the Chinese Communist Party and friends for crimes against America, China, and the world. And this was basically the first 70 or so of these webinars, an effort to distill that information and make it available. But when you look at the kind of, I say, no, leave no stone unturned strategy they followed it's staggering and you add on top of it the conventional force buildup and the nuclear force buildup um we've got a very formidable threat in fact i believe it is the greatest existential threat to freedom in history and that's a phrase that ronald reagan famously coined about its predecessors the old soviet union was you know a potted plant as they say by comparison with these guys even in its heyday yeah, yeah, right on, right on. It's uh, I and and we lived through. I mean, I mean, especially with the committee on present danger, we knew as soon as the virus hit, we knew this was not right. We knew this was uh, it, it immediately gave indicators of of willful, willful action, 100%. and then the summer of violence in America, Antifa, Black Lives Matter, all those leaders have have traces right to the uh, uh, the United Front, all the, I mean, these are extensions of the Chinese Communist Party. And I mean, yes. America uh, was just it was it was all a influence operation by uh, the Chinese Communist Party. And it just about ripped this country apart. Uh, I would say it did rip this country apart, John. It, it toppled our president. Mm -hmm. It created incalculable economic devastation. And it set the stage for what may well be coming next, which is a violent civil war mm -hmm. um, between factions in America. I, I think that's part of what the Chinese have in mind for us in these months to come. You and I have talked about this in connection with their ambitions to take Taiwan. Xi Jinping, John, as you've helped us document in the committee's webinars, has been engaged in a kind of pyromania around the world, mm -hmm. setting fires in Ukraine, setting fires in Israel, setting fires in the Red Sea, probably anywhere else you can think of. Uh, you've, you've got, I think, 12 or 13 different locations, uh, Korean Peninsula, Guyana versus, uh, you know, Nicolas Maduro in Venezuela, who knows where all else. But the point is, it's, I think, impossible 
that they would miss the opportunity to exploit, among other things, the movement of multiple divisions worth of People's Liberation Army forces inside our country and possibly marrying them up with a biological warfare laboratory complex here. We found one in Reedley, California, as you know, mm. but there may well be more. And all of that comes together in a mortal threat to this country. Could help them win in Taiwan without fighting, but it would involve uh, devastation here, I'm afraid. I hope we can avoid that, and we must deter it. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Well, thank you, Frank. This has been absolutely awesome. Uh, thank I you. Appreciate it so much, and uh, and and Frank, any other uh, grid coordinates uh, for you? Bob, just uh, Committee on the Present Danger China's website is presentdangerchina.org, and uh, ours at uh, Center for Security Policy, John, is securefreedom.org. Okay, thank, thank you, you so much. Oh, wow, thank you, Frank, and everyone. This has been Carl Rett, John, an absolutely uh, riveting uh, hour with uh, Frank Gaffney, uh, my, my good friend, my mentor, uh, colleague uh, from the Committee on Present Danger, Center for Security Policy. Thank you, Frank. And uh, everyone, uh, we'll, be, uh, we'll be back next week with another episode. Thank you so much, uh, everyone. This has been Colonel Rhett John on National Security Hour for America Out Loud News Network. <laughs>